Hi, I'm Marnie, and welcome to Dwelling, a podcast that explores how we find and fight the feelings of home. Throughout my early 20s, I jumped around the rental market, fighting estate agents and landlords for a decent place to live, spending hours trawling through property websites and figuring out the best way of saying, please let me have somewhere to live. And I got tired of the personal struggle, watching my friends go through the same thing and realising that actually the forces that make homes so hard to find are impacting us all. The housing crisis in the UK has been raging for over a decade, with rents skyrocketing, house prices becoming entirely unattainable and we're all feeling the impacts. We don't have any rights as the people living here. And I'm like, how is that even possible? And then it got too much rent to pay, uh, a bit too poor, and I think. And the only outside space was a tiny little balcony that was directly over the bins, the communal bins. It was so grim. It was like a attic room in a house that had been converted into three different flats. So altogether in this building that used to be a house, there was 12 people living in there. There must be an alternative, that feeling of like, there must be an alternative to what we are doing. According to Crisis, there's just not enough affordable housing for people on lower incomes. Shelter has reported that homelessness has risen 11% in just the last three months, and youth homelessness charity Centrepoint has reported an increase of 41% since 2016. But it's not just about those who are unable to access housing. Those of us that have homes are reporting worse conditions, poor well-being, and an increasing sense of isolation. We're living in a world where the aspiration of home ownership is totally unattainable to most young people. So with the traditional route of home inaccessible to many of us, how can we create alternatives? And how can we find that feeling of home? When you think of home, what do you think of? It was, uh, so it's a Victorian or Edwardian era fire station. So like pretty like physically homely like there were people cooking and workshops that were running and things like that and um loads of ideas bouncing around so i i guess it's really just yeah like that thing of you do really rapidly start to kind of build your own little culture somewhere like that where you're with all these people and there's there's a lot of really creative people who end up in squats as well so that helps <laughs> This is Ross. Um, so Ross, how do we know each other? Hello, Marnie. Um, swing dance. Really. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, what's swing dance? <laughs> Originally, swing dance at Bristol Uni, which we did for a year and never got good at. And following that, appropriately living together. Yeah. It just, it just goes nice. Ross is an enigmatic character. He can barely keep still. So. and can generally be relied upon if you're looking for a bit of adventure or just have an hour-long discussion on the intricacies of Survivor. A few months after we moved out of our Bristol house, I texted Ross to see how he was doing. Over the year we'd lived together, we'd spent hours discussing housing and home. I was kind of questioning to what degree market solutions are, are good for solving something like housing. So when I asked where he was living, his answer surprised me. Today we're looking at Bailey House in Glasgow. For those of you who haven't heard, Bailey House is the occupation of the former Hamish Allen Centre, an asylum seekers night shelter in Tradeston. 
They were set up to offer accommodation to climate justice campaigners during COP26. And so the charity to... where I was volunteering was called Stop Climate Chaos Scotland. We were trying to bring people from the official, really sterile environment of COP and connect them to the activist kind of community. I had a pretty good mullet at the time, a long one with a really shit haircut for the normal bit. So I think someone kind of spotted that and thought that I might be the sort of person that would like to live in a squat. In the UK today, we have nearly 90,000 empty homes. In one of the worst housing crises in living memory, we have 90,000 fully functioning houses sitting empty. There are 10 empty commercial buildings for every registered person sleeping on the streets. The fact that buildings are allowed to remain empty is in itself an inherently political act. It gives right to property, to landowners, over individuals, community and society. So squatting is a really interesting thing because there's all this dead housing stock in the UK, all of these buildings that aren't being used. And if you think, oh, how are people who need housing, how are vulnerable people who don't have lots of resources going to get it? Obviously, one of the ways is like with squats, with people who are willing to take risks because they're in such, can often be in difficult situations, they just go take it. <laughs> like as a kind of model, that was interesting. And I, I wanted to find out more and I also needed somewhere to stay. So today we're speaking to squatters, people who are creating homes and community spaces to rest this emptiness into a space that serves a purpose, to breathe life back into buildings. Squatting was basically something I'd only heard my mum talk about. So I started to do some research. I wanted to know how and why Ross and 20 other environmental activists had to break into a disused building just to have somewhere to stay so they could be part of the conversation. Squatting is when someone deliberately enters the property without permission and lives there or intends to live there. And squatting isn't just about housing. It provides a way for social groups that society ignores to gather, create movements and have the spaces and resources to exist. Squatting as we know it today started after the Second World War. With many homes decimated by the Blitz, families and war widows were unable to wait for houses to be provided by the slow cogs of a post-war government. And as council housing lists became longer and longer, a squatter's movement began to emerge to take direct action to house the homeless. And by the 1970s, it had become apparent that there was a group of people that the housing system was leaving behind, penalising and punishing. Women. The rise in single mothers and the prejudice in the justice system meant that women were increasingly less likely to be housed and often led to their children being taken away. The controversial mockumentary, Kathy Come Home, illuminated the issues that so many single mothers were facing. Sorry, but I'm afraid we'll have to move you out. We were going to be evicted anyway. Are you? I mean, they turned us out the caravan, didn't they? And they turned us out the derelict house. Well, they're going to find us here. I know they will. Why haven't you got flats empty half the night? You don't care. You only pretend to care. In the 1970s, squatting for women wasn't just about finding a physical home. It was about creating spaces in a way that had previously been denied to them. But there's one name that came up over and over again. Olive Morris, a founding member of the Brixton Black Women's Group. She was an advocate for women, people of colour and housing rights. And she intrigued me. If you type squatters into Google, 
you're bound to see the picture of Olive clambering onto a roof using a wonky drain pipe as a foothold. She was a cover girl of the squatter's handbook for over 20 years and remains one of the most influential squatter's activists. So one day in July, I took my bike, who I lovingly refer to as Delilah, down to Lambeth Archives. I cycled down Brixton Road with the sun blaring down as I weaved through traffic, my backpack laden with audio kit, notes and research. When I arrived, I was handed a stack of CDs that held interviews from Olive's friends, family and fellow activists. As I put them one by one into the CD drive, as my ancient laptop whirred and clicked, I felt transported to that time, these people, with issues that are glaringly similar to today. My name's Jennifer Lewis Nee Morris. I was born in Jamaica. I, I just remember Olive as being the big sister. She was a very good big sister. She, at, the, at the time, I didn't appreciate it, of course. Um, so she would take charge of us, the younger ones, even charge of her bigger brother, because <laughs> that's how Olive was. I was young, so I didn't really pay much attention. I just knew mum and dad wasn't there. They were in, in England. My uncle was in England, and we lived with our grand. But, you know, you just go on with your life running around as kids don't really think about it. And when it was time to come over, we knew we were going to England to meet Mum and Dad again. This is Brixton, where this train terminates. And how's it for Of course, because the sort of um, nature she had, she had a hard time getting on with my dad because she felt that he was bossy to my mum. That's how it was until finally when she decided to leave home. She just felt that she couldn't take it anymore. So when when my dad hit her, she'd call the police. The police didn't really take it. In these days, they would take more notice of it, but in them days, they didn't take that much notice. Um, she'd call the police every time she hit her. And then one day, she was just sent to home, to um, children's home. So then that's when she first left home, even though she was still going to um, secondary school in Lavendrill. Um, who am I? I'm a mother, grandmother now, but um, how did I get to know Olive? I left home when I was quite young, I was about 16 and a half. There was this kind of widely held belief that at that time as well, that if you had a child or children, you'd get rehoused by the council, but it was, I think, just as difficult then as it probably is now. So there were many... Um, not only single parents, but couples as well with children who were squatting. So that was really my introduction, if you like, to squatting. So it was, it was not squatting so much um, as a kind of revolutionary act, but more as a need, you know, we just needed somewhere to live, needed somewhere decent to live. And again. How did she find it? It was in Brixton still. And it was on Railton Road, so she'd walk around and say, well, that's an empty property, that's not doing nothing, let's see if we can get in there. And if she got in there, that was it. But the first time I, I met her at a meeting, I remember thinking, she's not very big. Because for some reason, I think because she was always being mentioned, I don't know, she just somehow seemed as if she was a very big person. 
and she'd help you whether you asked for it or not, which is, you know, what got her into a lot of trouble. I suppose it's a kind of famous picture of her sort of um, um, sizing up some policemen, you know, who are all bigger and taller than her because she was just walking by and saw you know, police harassing somebody and she just kind of moved in, you know, as she as she did, you know. I had joined the group. There was, I mean, I think because the Brixton Women's Group was just full of right-on women. And I think that was because they started up the Women's Group. They'd all come from, the, the, the founders of the group came from members of the Panthers. And I think they had to be that to kind of shout down the men and sort of go off and do their own thing so I think they were very kind of strong women so they're very vocal people I'm just trying to think which of the demonstrations we were involved in there seemed to be demonstrations there seemed to be every bloody week we were out there making placards for some demonstration or the other two to three hundred people turned up at the events and it cracked I'm Mike I said I was Olive's Uma as in this is Mike, he's my Omer. <laughs> to see a woman of that age and with that vitality, just so youthful and so much in front of her, she was just, she just qualified, she got a job at Brixton Law Centre, the world was really her oyster. And then for it all to just be taken away so quickly, it was just, it was just devastating. And then the uh, the big thing was the memorial service. I think it was two weeks later at the Abang Centre, and that was really big. And that's a woman who had no official position. She wasn't secretary of the. She wasn't a councillor. And it was just extraordinary that kind of thing she radiated. Um, she demonstrated that more things are possible for people. They think they are in terms of what you can achieve from the humblest of beginnings. And I don't mean that in a career sense, but rather in a sense of self. What causes do you think she would be interested in? Oh, yes. Um, I think she'd still be fighting for women's rights, like she always did then. Um, and she always felt that everybody should have somewhere to live, which was what started her off with um, the squatting, I think, in Brixton. Acre Lane, Acre Lane, she made it over a place. But she didn't stay there long before she died. She spent most of that time with that place in Oswald. It's really unfortunate because this was the time I'm sure she would have enjoyed being able to say, I've actually done, this is what I wanted, I've got a place. Olive died when she was just 27, but her legacy has proved powerful as one of her squats, 121 Railton Road, became one of the longest-lasting squats in the UK and was used as a site of enormous change. She continues to inspire activism and was a true pioneer of the right to home, particularly for women and particularly for women of colour. But home isn't just about the four walls you occupy. It's about the place, the people, a safety and a freedom to be yourself. As I continued to dig into how squatting has affected our relationship to home, I found another organisation that utilised squatting to fight for social change and more equitable ways to find home. Queer Option will be held in a squatted venue, an opportunity for queers of all sexualities And then another. Together. The Gay Liberation Front, based in 121 Royal And another. Then I went to visit the Autonomous Winter and Shelter. And another, and another, and another, and another. And another. And another. And another. And another.
and another. So, I've been sifting through this box. And it's a letter and it starts, Dear Squatter Name, Dear Squatter, Name Unknown. It's kind of, your occupation kind of feels like it, especially in like the political scene in the late 90s. Wasn't it an easy time to be you queer? Have no right to occupy these premises. And this really feels like taking someone's... I don't know exactly how to say this, but it feels like a small victory to be able to hold a party where you can celebrate your identity that is not being treated well by modern society. Well, it's not modern society anymore, I guess. Um, yeah, and it's samba, sewing, healing with chocolate, what do bisexuals do after dark, fertility awareness, life modelling. It just feels like it was a space where people could really be themselves. Citizens Advice Bureau, a local housing advice centre. Yours sincerely, Colin Graham, State Manager. So, in many ways, the Glasgow squat, Bale Hoos, my Scottish accent's so bad, I'm so sorry. It followed a trajectory. When people are denied these basic feelings of belonging in spaces and cities, or the basic right of home, isn't it only logical they might try to take it for themselves? But squatting today is very different. It's illegal to squat in a building intended for residential use. Due to the increasing restrictions on squatters' rights and the negative portrayal of squatting in the media, it proved extremely difficult to get people to talk about their homes and squat. I would find someone's happy to talk, arrange a time to meet, and I would get a lot of this. Yeah, that's a shame. Hopefully he'll call me back. But I kept trying, I kept calling and I kept emailing. Until eventually, as I was about to give up on speaking to squatters who have it as a way of life rather than as part of a political protest, the advisory service for squatters said they'd be up for speaking to me, otherwise known as ass. So on a bitingly cold day, I cycled down to the Freedom Press bookshop to speak with Hollis, a squatter of almost 30 years. Going up a set of creaky stairs, I was confronted with leaflets and posters showing activism and protest over the last 40 years. From trans rights to animal liberation, to anarchy to the environment, we sat in a drafty office room that smelt of curry and tea. Hollis looked a bit nervous to be speaking with me, although as it was in the minuses outside at the time, mostly he just looked cold. Um, I've known squatters since before I was a squatter, partially politically and partially out of necessity. Politically, I don't believe in the ownership of property. I'm also quite poor. <laughs> I personally, and as with a lot of what I've just said, this isn't a, a view necessarily shared by everyone in the advisory service for squatters. But yeah, I, I see property as part of an inherently hierarchical system, which is 
is exploitative in its very nature and means that the resources that that humans need to use to be able to support each other to stay alive are, are held in the hands of the few and not by all of us. Uh, squatters were often very good at making a home out of what is about us. We, we, we can do that very quickly, but it doesn't get it doesn't last for very long. Often, it's it's a very vulnerable. You often have to start from scratch again and again. Primarily, it's it's a roof over people's heads. Um, that that can't be denied, <laughs> particularly when it's as cold as it is now. Whilst the government provision that is there, things like the severe win winter emergency pro protocol that's in force at the moment, that may provide a roof over people's heads in the short term. It's not giving people any sense of home, any sense of agency. It's not creating a situation you can you can build communities out of. Throughout my research, the motivations for squatting had varied enormously and had previously been people from all walks of life. But with increasing restrictions, I wanted to know who was in the squatting community now and what kind of people were inside the UK's empty buildings. Yeah, and it varies from crew to crew. You get some households of squatters who are full-on party people, ravers 24-7, and some who are very placid, chill, just want somewhere to live, and some who are... Uh, more militant on the activist side of things and a whole range of things in between. And and it did act as a really good mixing pot for all these different people. That's, <laughs> I mean, if I, look through, if I look through my gallery of that particular moment in time, we had a guy in his 70s who constantly dressed as Santa from Canada. We had a guy from Germany who walked all the way from Hamburg in a giant metal hamster ball. There was then all of the women and non-binary people who opened the squat. Then there was all sorts of activists from all over the world. Well, mostly all over Europe who had kind of been on the front lines. of. I asked Ross and Hollis what challenges they were facing in a world of tightening restrictions, criminalisation and increasingly heavy-handed policing. It was kind of unexpected for me. Like If I was interviewing, I wouldn't realise it's like the psychological strain of being in an environment like that like you have basically a load of people who generally a squat is not the first choice of place to live so a load of people who are in in some way vulnerable living in a space and there's loads of riot police outside a lot of them have had previous run-ins with the riot police with like really bad experiences with police and, and like trauma associated with the police. And then you've also got all of these new people coming and going where like at times there there could be quite a lot of paranoia in the air because people are worried about and don't know who they can trust. And there's this kind of threat right out the door. And by the end of it, I was pretty happy to have a break from because yeah, it's it's difficult. And over the last decade, decade and a half, it's become a lot quicker with various different laws, the process of evicting squatters through legal channels. We've seen also a rise of more renegade kind of bailiffs and high court enforcement officers 
who often aren't being challenged for for the ways that they're going going about, quite often criminally evicting squatters, and not just squatters, people in other vulnerable situations, housing-wise. There's not um, there's not any any people that are like at serious risk of um, like deportation or anyone with like unsafe um, visas. Uh, and we really want that to be the case that people can come, um, but because the, since, since since this place has been public for over the last, uh, well, yeah, yesterday it went public, um, the police have just been, like, handing us, and it hasn't felt safe to invite people in, so... One of the um, bail house activists was interviewed outside the squat the day after it went public. Bail house gained a lot of traction in the media, with The Guardian describing it, rightly or wrongly, as a slice of utopia. There's been loads of, like, mainstream news um, outlets that have come and, like been really really in support which is kind of interesting i haven't really come across that before with things to do with things to do with squatting i guess it's because like it's cop and there's lots of like (laughs) white middle class people involved and race and gender and class are a huge factor Uh, in how people find home and also how they're treated by the systems of hierarchy and oppression that surround housing it's also prevalent within activism. The recent case of Satchel, one of the few activists of colour in the protests against the high-speed railway, was arrested and imprisoned, while many of his white counterparts weren't even taken into custody. And how did the squat end? Like, how, how did you leave? Yeah, peacefully, which was nice. And as I understand it, that was a thing that was really unusual for a squat, that we were actually able to say, we're going to leave on this day and then leave. Because of the fact that it was happening, it became a media spectacle that allowed for all these different things to happen. Yeah, we walked out on our own accord. And for a lot of the people there who are kind of more seasoned at that kind of thing, like I think it was a like important moment for them. It really kept the memories of the place sweet because it did kind of break a lot of ground and it did really it really hit it hit what it was supposed to do. It housed a load of activists during COP. Pretty much everyone went and did a welding course. (laughs) (laughs) Except for me. Pretty much everyone left the squat and decided to go learn how to do metalwork. I've I've said a lot of stuff that's kind of a bit negative about it because I kind of don't want to give some overly romantic vision of it. But obviously, one of the good things about living in squats is that you don't pay rent. And the one I was in was an activist one, but you do get ones that aren't, where people do just have jobs and you can save up money and then spend that money on stuff that's not rent like learning how to weld basically people are using people are using the money to buy education and investing in themselves you know things are pretty bad now like if we don't get some significant change in policy like what's what's this country going to be like in 10 years so it's not going to be I, I don't know I I, mm. I definitely I definitely worry about it The cost of living crisis is biting, and a report by Metropolitan Thames Valley Housing found that three in five young people felt that housing was affecting their mental health. And a study by the New Economic Foundation found that 30 million people in the UK would be priced out of a decent standard of living by 2024. That's almost half the population of the UK. What Hollis had said about the systems of hierarchy and property, it feels like it all makes sense. The gripes I had about extortionate rent and the unjustness of the housing system all fell into place. Although Ross and I did not put it quite so eloquently. 
why stuff is shit is because some people have all the stuff yeah yeah some people do literally have all the stuff okay cool i'm gonna stop recording now because uh yeah deteriorating (laughs) also surprised at the moment that more people aren't starting to squat the it's not growing and that that surprises me we've spoken quite a lot about the the difficulties that come with squatting and that they're increasing why does it surprise you given all of these these challenges um because it seems like amongst every other kind of affordable housing the difficulties in, in doing anything are increasing on on the same kind of level at the same kind of pace before I left Whitechapel, I had one final question for Hollis. Yeah. Someone who had spent his whole life thinking about housing, putting himself through hard situations out of necessity and political beliefs, and advocating for others. I wanted to know cool. what a world would look like <laughs> where home was for everyone. There wouldn't need to be squatters because property wouldn't be being owned by a few and fewer and fewer greedy landlords. Uh, we would see a lot more things owned and run and upkept by the communities that are using them. We would have a lot more agency in how we relate to the buildings and structures around us and what we use them for. This this could overlap easily with uh, wider land usage and agricultural practices, for example. Yeah, I, I think we could make this world very beautiful and very equal, but we're not getting there yet. <laughs> this series on dwelling. And when you see the whole roading or the whole river and its tributaries as your home, then actually, yeah, you want to take care of it. And for me, I mean, whether you're travelling or whether you're static or wherever you are, it's people that make home. I I wouldn't think it would be a home if I wouldn't know anybody there. Definitely, it's more freedom. But then that's at a cost, isn't it? That's the thing. Find us on your favourite streaming platforms and release weekly on Mondays. Follow us on social media at dwelling underscore pod, powered by Transmission Roundhouse.